Welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I'm Tim Moore. And I'm Nathan Jones. We're picking up speed in our series focusing on Jesus in the Old Testament and still highlighting prophetic types and appearances of the Messiah throughout the Word of God. Following Israel's possession of the Promised Land under the decisive leadership of Joshua, they drifted. Lacking a bold leader or a clear objective, the tribes settled, literally and figuratively. They entered into a cycle of oppression amidst the Canaanites that lingered in the land and nearby external foes. And they played the harlot and succumbed to idol worship. When the children of Israel cried out to God, He raised up judges, what we would call leaders, to lead the people in battle and steer them back to a right relationship with Him. Following shortly after Joshua's death, the events of the book of Judges covered about 325 years or approximately 1400 to 1075 B.C. Some of the judges are well known even today. Gideon and Samson are presented in extended narratives that capture their very human flaws and their service to God and His people. Others were less well known like Ehud and Jephthah. And one, Deborah, was a woman who led Israel to military victory. But they all reflect the sad commentary repeated three times within the book. During those days there was no king in Israel. With that background I've invited Michelle Bachman, an outspoken Christian and a famous bold leader in her own right, to join us today. Congresswoman Bachman, Dean Bachman, Mrs. Bachman, Michelle, we are delighted to have you with us here today. It is such an honor, Tim, for me to be on this show with you today for Lamb Lion Ministries. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, we have something else in common. We both served in the legislature. And by way of background, you leapt into the national consciousness when you served in Congress and quickly became known for your forthright manner and clear-eyed adherence to a biblical or Judeo-Christian worldview. And you continue that today. Well, thank you. Uh, that really defines me. I came to Jesus Christ when I was 16 years of age, and I saw a complete compare and contrast between not being in Christ and being in Christ. And so for me, I was so blessed because the Lord took me to understand what a biblical worldview is, the fact that the Bible touches every single area of life. I didn't intend to go into politics. That was not my life work. But the Lord allowed me to go in that direction. And what helped me more than anything was having a solid understanding of the scriptures and coupled with the fact that the Bible does have something to say about nearly every area of life. So when I went into the United States Congress, it wasn't hard for me to know how to vote or where to stand on issues because I had a framework of understanding what the Bible had to say about the many issues that came before the United States Congress. Well, you're certainly so correct. The Bible is definitely clear about giving guidelines that apply to every arena of our lives. Now, sadly, it just seemed a few years ago that arguments in Washington centered on issues that were seemed quaint compared to today's battles. I mean, they talked about taxes and fiscal policy. They talked about expansive government versus limited government. I mean, these are age-old Democrat versus Republican questions. But now they can't agree on even words anymore. How do you think we've gotten to this point? Well, it's really a moment of clarity. And the debate remains the same. But the definer is this. One particular political party looks to what I would call authoritarianism where the state has all power, all control. The other party tends to look at the individuals having liberty, but liberty under law. 
where the people get to choose. They have a voice and a say on the issues and how they want issues to work out and also who they want to represent them. Not so with authoritarianism. Under authoritarianism, there's a few people who think it's their opinion, their right, whatever they want is what the people should have to bear. It's a real complete contrast, a compare and contrast between authoritarianism, where the state delivers all effective mandates versus liberty under law, where the people get to choose a form of government under the guidance of biblical standards. That's an excellent point because yes, we choose liberty and freedom, but under the guidance, as you said, of biblical standards. So to follow up on the last question, there was once broad consensus that our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and even that most of our founders were confessing Christians. But now, Barack Obama's statement seems all too fitting. America is no longer a Christian nation. How do you respond to that? Well, when, when Barack Obama stated that America is no longer a Christian nation, it almost seemed like there was a sense of glee in the tone of his voice when he said that, that he was happy that that was happening. And my opinion, and I said this when I was in the United States Congress at the time, um, the legacy of Barack Obama will be the establishment of lawlessness in the United States. Lawlessness is not the type of governance that is God's idea. God's idea is liberty under law, under biblical law. Lawlessness isn't serving anyone very well. We have a living laboratory just in the last year. If people re recall what government was like under Donald Trump, and again, I'm not saying Donald Trump was perfect, he certainly wasn't, but America had its highest standard of living, its greatest freedoms um, for Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, the highest standard of living and freedom and workforce participation happened under Donald Trump. In less than 10 months, the United States has cratered and collapsed in almost every measure. And it's because of our form of governance. We went from liberty, personal choice under law, and today we're authoritarianism, where government makes mandates. They tell us what we have to do, and there's no getting away from it. What has that brought to us, uh, Tim? That's, brought, that's made the American people poorer, we're sicker, we're less free, we have very little border enforcement, and we're wide open and vulnerable to attack. That's in less than 10 months time. It makes an incredible difference what type of governance we have, whether it is radical governmental authoritarianism versus liberty under biblical law. And I think if people had to choose today, they would choose liberty under biblical law, what we were enjoying more under Donald Trump than what we have today under Biden, which is direct rank authoritarianism. Well, the book of Judges repeatedly says over and over again that there was no king in Israel in those days. So without the rule of law under God's anointed king, the nation descended into chaos. And ironically, our society promotes unfettered liberty, and yet it's falling under increasing authoritarianism. Back in the days of the judges, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals or the Ashtoreths, and they fell prey to the pagan people among and around them. They provoked to anger God, who allowed them to endure punishment and persecution. And then he would raise up judges to deliver them from their misery and steer them back towards faithfulness. And the tragic cycle just repeated over and over again. 
Will the human race ever learn? <laughs> well, it, clearly, if you look at the Bible, it seemed like the children of Israel didn't seem to learn. They continued to repeat the mistakes and lessons. We're no different from the children of Israel today. We continue to fall into sin and want what we want. But it's really true. When you read through the course of the Old Testament, you see and you almost want to just shake the Israel people and say to them, why don't you just do what God said? Why don't you just obey? Your lives would have gone better. Your society would have been fruitful. You wouldn't have been scattered had you not been disobedient. Your nation would have thrived. And of course, that's true for us today, too. We probably have more rank disobedience from the things of God today, even during the times of the Israelites. It all comes down to this. It's the first commandment. Who is God? Whom will we serve this day? Joshua said, whom shall we serve this day? Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When we as a nation choose God and choose to obey his word, then there's peace in the land and there is blessing. And that's what we see in America today because of our sin, because we choose our sin over obedience. That's why we're seeing the collapse in the United States today. We certainly are. In addition to men, God raised up a gifted woman to judge Israel. Deborah was a prophetess in her own right, a wife and a lady of great discernment. She called on Barak to lead an Israelite army into battle, but he refused to do so unless she joined him. And so as Deborah foretold, he would not receive the honor of leading the sons of Naphtali and Zebulun into battle. Congresswoman Bachman, I've said that you are a modern day Deborah. What does she represent to you even today? Well, thank you. I wish I could say that I was. I certainly don't feel that way. But what Deborah, what Deborah did in the Bible that was so profound is, A, she believed that God is who he says he is. And then she willingly obeyed and did exactly what he said. Deborah had no fear. She trusted the Lord. She trusted the consequences of what the Lord was calling her to do because she knew that God's ways were good and altogether righteous. And so she trusted him no matter what. She was willing to trust God. She was willing to lead. And even the man who had the highest rank at the time, Barak, was not willing to truly trust the Lord unless Deborah was with him. I think it's because he saw in Deborah faith a profound faith and a trust and a belief in the righteousness and might of God. We see that in various characters in the Bible. When faith in God is paramount, that's when victory comes. And even though today in America, we're in extremely difficult times, it's imperative that we know God, believe God, trust God. That's our opportunity for the greatest outcome in the United States, trusting in the Lord our God and obeying His Word. Amen. She really hit the nail on the head. Yes, she sure did. <laughs> well, there was another woman featured prominently in that story. If we go to it, Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, he fled when the Lord routed his chariot-based army, and he encountered a woman who was named Jael. She was a woman of great resolve. She was the wife of Heber the Kenite, and he, she invited Sisera into her tent. Tell us the rest of that story, if you would. Well, she was an extremely brave woman. I'm not sure that I could do what she did. Sisera was the leader of the enemy army, the enemy that was killing the Israelites. But she invited this ruthless, bloodthirsty leader into her tent 
She was very wise. She gave him warm milk to drink. He was exhausted, so she gave him comfort food. And then when he was resting, she took a tent peg in her left hand and a hammer in her right hand, and she drove the tent peg through his temple and ultimately killed him and rescued the Israel people from this ruthless army because she took out the ruthless army's commander, Sisera. She was absolutely remarkable, an extremely brave woman, but she trusted in the Lord and she also understood the threat that Sisera was to the Israelite people. He was an existential threat. He had the power to wipe them out. So it was either Sisera would prevail or the Israelite people would prevail. She took what she had within her power, something very simple, inviting him into her tent, giving him comfort food, and then taking what she had at her hands, a tent peg and a hammer, and she solved the problem. An incredibly brave, courageous woman. She certainly was. Scripture is filled with brave, discerning women. We could talk about Rahab and Ruth and Lydia and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So many times God raised up women to serve in mighty ways, and He still does. Another famous judge who seemed wholly inadequate for the call on his life was Gideon. As a matter of fact, when God called Gideon to lead his people, the Lord greeted him with a salutation that smacks of sarcasm, but was actually intended to encourage him. What did the Lord say? The, 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 the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he was down in the bottom of, of a wine press. He was grinding out grain because he didn't want the Midianites to steal the grain. And the angel of the Lord said to him, O mighty warrior. So in that posture, when Gideon was in that posture, he didn't look particularly mighty, but the Lord saw in Gideon that he could be a mighty warrior. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So many times God has raised up individuals. He calls them to tasks and challenges that are far beyond their abilities because only through the power of God and the Holy Spirit can they actually rise to that challenge. Well, Gideon grew eventually to exhibit tactical prowess in battle, and he certainly didn't seem to be a mighty warrior at first, did he? No, he wasn't because even he said back to the angel of the Lord, wait a minute. I come from the least tribe in Israel, and I'm the weakest. I'm the weakest clan in all of Israel. So he was saying to the Lord, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm the weakest link here. Why are you coming to me? And yet he recognized who the angel of the Lord was. And when he recognized who the angel of the Lord was, the first thing he did is prepare an offering to the Lord. He gave that offering to the Lord. The Lord received that offering. And the next thing Gideon did was build an altar to the Lord. So he had the right response. He recognized who God was. He worshiped God. He trusted God. He obeyed God every step of the way. And through this weakest man in Israel, God delivered the whole nation. And that's what it says to each one of us. It isn't our might. It isn't our power. It isn't our strength. It isn't that we're the biggest, the tallest, the best looking, the smartest, the richest, the most clever. It's usually he chooses the least obvious person to lead. He's looking for, just like King David, someone who has a heart after God, someone who, who will obey. Surely J.L. obeyed. Surely Deborah obeyed. And Gideon obeyed. I appreciate you saying that he chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. 
We could also delve into the life of Samson, a tragic hero if ever there was one, but that is not our focus in this series. Our goal is to highlight Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Where do you think He appears in the book of Judges? Well, the book of Judges, clearly with the story of the, uh, Gideon, for instance, it was an angel of the Lord that appeared to Gideon. It doesn't give a name to the angel, like Michael or Gabriel or anything else. And the fact that Gideon worshipped the angel of the Lord and built an altar to the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord said, did not say, don't bow down, don't give me this offering. The angel received it. That says to me that that angel of the Lord was in fact Jesus Christ, that God himself appeared because it was a human being that uh, Gideon was looking at. Human being in the sense that it was an image and likeness of an angel. Amen. That was beautifully said. Well, how else does the book of Judges highlight Jesus as the Messiah who would come and is coming again? Well, I think in the book of Judges, what we see is that men continually over and over sinned in Israel, and yet God always came to rescue. We know from, from the Bible that Jesus will come again. Ultimately, one day he will come to ultimately rescue us from this earth. That's what the book of Judges says to me. We can trust in this God who will never abandon us here on this earth. He's made a way of escape and he will come back and we can rest in assurance in his loving arms, not in a king, but in a Christ, in our Messiah, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Dean Bachman, I could not improve upon your words at all. Still, Michelle, there are many people who are losing hope as darkness seems to be descending even in the land of the free and the home of the brave. You have been an inspiration to so many, not only because of your elected service and boldness in standing for biblical truth, but also in your role as a foster mother and as a supporter of Israel and proclaimer of the Lord's soon return. What gives you hope, or more specifically, who gives you hope? What gives me hope more than anything is the Word of God. And as I look at this society collapsing around us and the loss of freedom, not just here in the United States, but globally, we're seeing events unlike anything that's ever been seen in world history. Uh, just knowing the fact that the modern Jewish state, in accordance with scriptures, back where uh, the Bible said it would be, the fact that Jerusalem is back in the control of the Jewish people. As we look at all of these global events occurring, this tells us that Jesus is even at the door. His return draweth nigh. So where should we be? The scripture is clear. We need to be like the 10 virgins with our lamps full. We need to be filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. We need to be occupying till he comes. We need to be understanding the scripture and living it out and proclaiming that the soon and coming king will be here, that the hour is at hand, that the fig leaf, the leaf is already budding. And so this is the most exciting time in all of history to be alive. Rather than being fearful at the collapse that we see around us, we should rejoice because our redemption in that our Lord is coming back soon. We need to be ready and we need to proclaim his word so that those around us will be saved and be ready to meet our soon and coming king. Amen and amen. You sound a lot like our mutual friend, Jan Markell, who says the world isn't so much falling apart as the pieces are falling in place, pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Congresswoman Bachman, uh, Dean Bachman, Michelle, 
Thank you very much for joining us today, taking the time. I'm so glad that the Lord is raising up Deborah's to serve Him and to lead with boldness and conviction. And I pray that He continues to touch many lives through your continuing service. Thank you. I just want to tell everyone, don't delay. He's coming soon. Receive Him as Lord today. Amen and Maranatha. The indictment against Israel is summed up in the book of Judges as, There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. God's word is clear that the Lord has ordained government to serve His purposes and to restrain unfettered chaos. Governments and leaders are raised up to execute justice on the earth, imperfect as it is. They are charged with protecting their citizens and ensuring that people are able to live in relative peace and safety. In Romans 13, Paul emphasizes the proper role of government and even says that rulers are servants of God. That is certainly the ideal. Throughout most of its history, America has touted its own form of government. Independence Day was commemorated not merely as the nation's birthday, but also as a celebration of our constitutional republic. Certainly, all the forms of government on the earth, the American experiment has led to blessing beyond measure. Compared to dictatorships, Communism, socialism, oligarchies, hereditary monarchies are the unattainable pure democracy our republic has proven to be best over time. But why was America blessed? Simply because of our form of government? No. American government and the ordered liberty our founders sought to establish was the direct result of a Christian foundation. It is a truism that government is downstream of culture. James Madison, who wrote the Constitution, recognized this fact and said, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? John Adams, the second president, said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And Adams was not referring to any generic religion. He and the other founders had only Christianity in mind as the basis for enlightened morality. Regarding the Constitution, Madison said it requires sufficient virtue among men for self-government. Otherwise, nothing less than the chains of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. His words ring prophetic in light of our current state. Robert George, a conservative political philosopher, put it this way, people lacking in virtue can be counted on to trade liberty for protection, for financial or personal security, for comfort, for having their problems solved quickly, and there will always be people occupying or standing for public office who will be happy to offer the deal. American exceptionalism is embraced by many Christian patriots in this nation, but prophecy teacher Ed Heinsohn made a keen observation. In no other country do Christians ask, where does my country fit in Bible prophecy? Only in America does our biblical understanding get so entangled with our national identity. Ordered liberty is the birthright of every American. It must never be traded for what amounts to a single meal of lentil stew. In the even bigger picture, we must not become so enamored with our form of government. As Christians, we look forward to living under the reign of a king. May he rule in our lives even now. Many Christians consider John 3.16 to be the core message of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But outside of evangelical circles, 
The verse cited more than any other is Matthew 7.1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Although the book of Judges has to do with the national leaders God's raised up to deliver the children of Israel before he anointed a king over them, we tend to think of the word in the context of criticizing or condemning. Jesus would caution us against the first action and prohibit the second. Callous criticism tears down instead of building up and daring to condemn, outside of very limited scriptural or legal parameters, risks taking on the role of God Almighty. But Christians are called to be discerning. In the latter half of the same chapter in Matthew, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of false prophets who inwardly are ravenous wolves. He said that we will know them by their fruit. Such recognition requires holy discernment. And similarly, in John 13, 35, he says that all men will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. The expectation for discernment in this case extends even to unbelievers, but with the purpose of pointing them to the one who loves flows through us. It is wrong-minded and off-putting to be judgmental, but it is spiritually mature to be indiscerning. Especially as our culture rejects its own Christian heritage, we must be shrewd as serpents and as innocent of doves, particularly because Christ sends us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Without glorified hearts and minds yet ourselves, how do we strike the right balance in the midst of a darkening world? Well, here is where we must pray for wisdom and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Red Green may have offered encouragement by saying, remember, I'm pulling for you, but we are praying for you. Judges reads like a repeated tragedy, doesn't it? it? It really does. And you know, the sad reality is like any fictional tragedy, Israel did not have to languish for hundreds of years. It could have been different for them. We can only wonder what kind of blessings the Lord would have poured down on the children of Israel had they remained faithful to Him. If they'd obeyed Him and driven out the evil Canaanites, they would have thrived in ways, well, we can only imagine. Yes, but that's also true for each of us as individuals. How much hardship comes into our lives because we stray from Jesus, wandering away from the one who wants to bless us? Are you saying then that uh, we'll never have any trouble in this world if we're Christians? No, of course not. You know, Jesus was one with the Father and all-powerful in His own right, and yet He suffered in this world. Paul and the other apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to their calling, also suffered for the cause of Christ. Jesus told us this would be so. Exactly. No, folks, the tragic drift of the Israelites in the book of Judges is summed up in our two key verses this week, Judges 2, 10 through 12, and 21, 25. You can read much more in our key verse commentary on our Christ in Prophecy website. But suffice it to say that those verses are keenly relevant to us today. They certainly are. And we hope that you are visiting our website to dig deeper each week as we explain our key verses and even highlight some other important verses from each book of the Old Testament. As we close out this episode, we'd like to invite you to join us in the coming year as a Prophecy Partner. For only $25 a month, you can help us proclaim the soon return of Jesus Christ. Well, next week we'll feature a special guest as we explore the lessons of Ruth. At only four chapters, it should be an easy read ahead. As you do, look for Jesus. For now, this is Nathan Jones. And Tim Moore saying, Look up, be watchful, for the Lord, our soon returning King, who reigns even now in the hearts of His people, is drawing near. Godspeed. Christ in Prophecy is made possible through the faithful and generous support of viewers like you. Please consider making a donation to Lamb and Lion Ministries so that we can continue broadcasting the message of Jesus' soon return. Thank you and God bless you.